Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build purpose-driven organizations. We'll be covering mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can take everything here and build your purpose-driven organization. My name is CK Lin, biomedical engineering, PhD, UCLA, turned startup executive, that turned executive coach for founders and entrepreneurs, specifically focusing on mindset and culture. My next guest is the chief evangelist at Google. He's the author of The Internet to the Internet. He sits on board of directors for the Desmond Tutu Peace Foundation. He's a musician with two music albums titled Kirtan Lounge. He's also a Burning Man devotee. Please welcome Gopi Kalayal. Thank you, CK. Pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. You know, I was actually recounting how we met. We camp at Burning Man together, and you're actually one of the first people that I met. And when you turn around, we did a little exercise together. Immediately, I thought to myself, this guy is deep. I want to get to know him a little bit more. So thank you so much for being here. At the opening ceremony, right? I remember, yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I hope I left it. Oh, that definitely. So one of the things we talk a lot about on this show is purpose. And if I look at everything that you've done, you are a chief evangelist at Google. You uh, write books. You sit on boards of uh, a director for the Desmond Tutu Peace Foundation. You love music. You're a Burning Man devotee, right? So if you look at everything that you're involved with, what would you say is the common denominator amongst all of them? Well, the common denominator is, uh, I would say most importantly, live life at its fullest and explore it in whatever dimension that calls out to you. I think we're blessed with the wonderful imagination, brain, creativity, opportunities, access, no matter what your circumstances. I think we all are in, a, in just if, you, if you're born, if you're blessed with life, you're blessed with a number of different opportunities and things that happen around you. So live life at your fullest to whatever extent your circumstances permit you is the underlying theme. But part of it is also, I think we have both the freedom, the responsibility, and the opportunity to take full advantage of each of our talents and interests. And I would say that would be the underlying theme that testing the boundaries of what is possible. Where can you go with your deep interests and passions and your curiosity uh, because on the one hand, you'd say that writing a book of the kind of written may have nothing to do with Burning Man or maybe Kirtan music, which might be true. And there's nothing wrong in these interests being very disparate and seemingly even disconnected. On the one hand, a more formal secular career trajectory at a company like Google or in strategy consulting seems as far away from exploring counterculture fringe festivals. But to me, all of those are within the realm of possibilities. You'll get to live one life, so live it the way you want to own it and live it. Mm, I love that. So a commitment to explore what's possible. That right. is the atomic unit. That's the seed that allow you to do all these different kind of things. Yeah, and, and what calls out to you as well. What is possible and what calls out to you at that point in time. So five years ago, I don't think like this kind of musical exploration is part of my journey, but since then it has evolved and that may change. I know building physical things is not part of it for some reason at this point. I don't seem to, but maybe it's that kind of sculpture design, industrial welding may call out to me four years from now and that may be a direction that I may want to move in. Maybe you write another book on welding. Yeah. The Zen of welding, kind of like the Zen of motorcycle maintenance. Exactly. I remember reading it when I was growing up and three times, partly because I had to read it three times to really understand what Robert Persig was saying. And, and also because I greatly enjoyed it, this juxtaposition of an adventure with the sun on a road bike mm. through the mountains of Montana while mm. he was going mad, literally. right? And he mm. had, I think he ended up in an asylum, at least for a portion of the time. Mm. And yet exploring very deep philosophical constructs was just brilliant. Do you feel that that level of conscious awareness or conscious awakening requires that 
suffering, that 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 intensity, that you know, the challenges that that we all face as humans. Yes, it does. I believe so. You have to go through a bit of what they call the darkness of your soul before you break through. And uh, in nature, the analogy is the most quoted one they talk about is what happens in the evolution of the butterfly. Here's a caterpillar, this creepy, crawly little thing that most people would shy away, would not want to touch and get anywhere near. And how can that little worm-like thing with 16 or 50 or how many her legs caterpillars have? Or maybe they don't have legs, but in a centipede style. So they belong to that category of being, suddenly get transformed, go through the cocoon stage, and then eventually become a, a butterfly. And now everyone wants to touch it and photograph it and want the same being that transmuted to come and sit on their hands. But the butterfly didn't just manifest like that. It had to start at a caterpillar, push through certain growth phases to get there. And uh, all philosophers you would see have their exploratory darkness moment, whether it's uh, Jesus in 40 years in the desert or Buddha wandering away from his gilded palace and uh, going hungry and sitting in silence under a, under the Bodhi tree for 40 days before he gets enlightened. So I think as humans, we have to, and that's where usually I've had my breakthroughs. I didn't call for the situation. At those times I really felt this was not the life I chose, but this was the life I've been given. And I had to take over that life that I've been given when things completely fall apart. And through that, then you have a breakthrough to the next level. Mm. And often people will say that it's when they lost the job or when the company crumbled or when they had to fold the startup that they founded and raised money and built it with great love and dreams for 10 years. And then it had to completely wind down uh, or they have a huge relationship problem or a parent dies that they have that breakthrough moment. Mm. Yeah. I, mean, I, I as, as you're speaking, I'm recalling my personal hero's journey as well. You know, in my younger days, I want to skip the pain altogether. I want the hack, yeah. right? I want the shortcut. I want the, hey, I can learn someone else's lesson. But really, from my personal experience, I could have learned it in the intellectual way, but really embodying it, really understanding the nuance yeah. and really gaining compassion and empathy to it, yeah. I had to go through it. There's yeah. no way to skip it. Would you agree? I completely agree. And uh, although one thing has changed, Seekin, and I had to go through life experience to get to that point. Earlier, I would fear those. I would shy away from it. They terrorized me. But now, I just accept them as things coming to you to teach you something. So I walk towards them. And the metaphor I use is, I am going to walk towards a storm. And in fact, in my first book, The Internet to the Internet, I talk about open with the story of the American bison, which there was a documentary made about it. And I think it was in the public television called Facing the Storm. And it, it earned that nickname because it is the one animal that when a winter storm approaches on the plains of the, I guess, the Midwest or a place like Montana, where the bison used to thrive and live, all other animals in nature flee the storm and try to go the other way because they see a storm approaching. The American bison is one animal that will actually turn towards the storm and walk into the storm because it understands that the sooner it walks into the storm, the sooner it can be out of it on the other side. And I love that metaphor, in fact, that the place, the building I worked in on a particular project at Google, the head of the project, one of my mentors actually told the story. That's where I learned it from. And he had a big stuffed version of uh, bison installed in the lobby. So as we walk through, it would remind us of facing the storm and walking towards the storm. Mm, I love that. What an imagery. I appreciate you. You're quite a storyteller. You know, one of the realization that I had in all of my human journey, spiritual journey, whatever you call it, is that the journey is the point. The journey is the point. It's not the let me get to let me get through it as quickly as possible, but actually enjoy the entire journey, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and really just 
allow myself to, as you said earlier, continue to explore what's possible for human being. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. One of the things we say here on this podcast a lot is our superpower comes from our deepest wounds. Once you get through it, then you develop extra capacity, extra <clears throat> capabilities. Then that becomes your superpower because you now have earned it, right? Yes. So it's a two-part question for you. So thinking back, what would you say would be your superpower? And then what would you say was the, the wounds that you had to overcome, that you had to integrate in order to earn your superpower? Yeah. I know it's an awkward and difficult question to answer, so probably may not even answer it because uh, you know, you're asking me to label something in me and say that's my superpower. That seems like such an ego statement. And <laughs> well, I'm not about capabilities. What, my capabilities? Yes, yeah, yeah, extra capability, super capability. Well, there are several. The one that uh, would stand out and that often has been commented on, I have, and it's a completely learned skill. I've become a good presenter, communicator, speaker. It wasn't in the English language, and English is my third language I had to learn. So, mm. and I spoke it in a very awkward way, in a rapid fire fashion, because of my mother tongue, Malayalam, how it's spoken. And, uh, and the way I would pronounce a word, the speed with which I would, the cadence, all that made me unintelligible. But I had to overcome all that and become a confident public speaker presenter. It's a skill people fear the most. Mm. In front of an audience and speaking to 2,000 people terrifies most people. And initially I did too, but I walked towards the storm. And no matter how much my throat dries up, felt parched, I said, I'm going to learn the skill. And one way I know is that you ask somebody and say, where do you learn the skill? Who can teach it to you? And they might make an introduction connection. So that's how I did. And eventually I found my way to a worldwide organization that helps people learn public speaking at a mastery level called Toastmasters. And that was a huge, made a huge difference. And I say, even the name is an odd one. I say it's uh, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous but it's <laughs> <laughs> for people with a speaking problem. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my advent into it. But it's led over the years. And just all I did was consistently show up, pick up one more skill, or get one more mentor. And over time, it led me to actually compete in the World Championship of Public Speaking. Oh, no kidding. You competed. Those are the trophies behind me, actually. And uh, one that is uh, looks like uh, it's really plastic, but I said lucite. Maybe it's lucite. It, but you can't see it here because of the light. And that's my proudest one. That's when in 2018, I ended up top 20 in the world from among mm. 35,000 competitors in 145 countries, from mm. 145 countries. So, but it's not just, it's not about winning a trophy. It's about picking up a skill, a talent to tell stories, to be persuasive and charismatic on stage and hold people's attention and move them to action, to make them believe in something. And I've used that skill in two dimensions at work. Uh, what I do for uh, Google at many levels is to use that skill to talk to senior leaders of our largest customers and make them understand a point of view around the digital technology and transform the business. And hence my title and role and why I'm dressed like this because I had a couple, three meetings of that kind today. And I just thought, and they were like with global companies, senior level. And uh, even though I'm doing it from home, I thought I just want, I, I wanted to show up in a certain way. Sure. Um, but that's on the professional side. It's helped me pivot my career around that skill. And I realized how much it's a sought after skill, particularly in my industry, to be able to take these complex concepts and demystify it for a business audience at a leadership level. But secondly, it's also given me a platform outside of work to able to speak and bring out messages that I want to deliver. And that's what led to five TEDx talks by now. Wow. Uh, hundreds of uh, speaking opportunities around the world. I travel all over the world and get to speak. I, I get invited. I would probably do it 2x that level. I'm going to post COVID, of course, <laughs> but you know, due to my work circumstances, I have to limit the number, but otherwise I get invited all the time. And that's quite an honor. And I find I'm deeply touched by it because to me, again, it's not about ego. It's about an amazing opportunities other human beings are giving to me. And I, 
I tell myself if I'm on stage for an hour doing a keynote with in front of let's say a thousand people or ten thousand people, all of which I've done. So if let's say, so let's say large scale audience of ten thousand people, you do a keynote. It's two hours of your time, but it's twenty thousand hours they're giving back in exchange. Mm. You know, twenty thousand hours of attention. So this is an unfair value. You're getting so much love back, and you mm. better take this very, very seriously. And uh, mm. and therefore, I do follow a thumb rule that my professional coaches have taught me that for you put in two hours of work for every minute on stage. Mm. So if you are going to be speaking for an hour, you better be prepared to put in uh, 120 hours of work, which seems like a lot, except when you realize that they are putting in 20,000 hours of their time. Mm. To you. Uh, so in terms of rehearsals, preparation, checking with the hosts, etc., I put in a lot of time. So I would say that would be one skill that I've uh, you know, picked up over the years, and that's you could call quote-unquote superpower, but I just think of a talent, a blessing that I've been given that has uh, really served me well in my personal and professional life. And mm -hmm. the reason being, communication is one of the key drivers of how we live and fun function. You can have the most amazing talent. You can have the most incredible ideas and uh, genius brain. But you are both judged, perceived, and the effect you can have on other people, your ability to influence and persuade, is all dependent on how well you can articulate and communicate that point of view, that idea. And either people will listen and will get moved by it, or they 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 won't get the message. They won't pay attention to your message. Mm, I love that. So inside of what you said, there's a few different points we want to highlight. Then I want to actually mention another superpower that you didn't mention is this. So you pull on the thread of this commitment to acquire new skills. You lean into it and then you follow that curiosity and then you and then you reframe the the work that you have to do as a way to earn the you know 20,000 hours of whatever attention that the audience is not gifting you. Yeah. I really like that mental model because in my mind, I'm a Toastmaster as well. Good. And Good. I competed as well. I didn't get to the world stage, but I competed regionally. <clears throat> in my mind, I was thought, like, man, there's like hundreds of hours of work for just 10 minutes, 20 minutes. But that framework of actually people giving you, gifting you their attention yeah. It's a beautiful, you know, for my, for my cerebral mind to, to make that calculation. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Once for that, for, I'm sorry, irrespective of all I'm saying is for the, and if you think you're putting a lot of time, you're getting 10 or 100 X the amount of time back in exchange. Totally. So now that you know the format of the contest, it's a, it's a seven minutes, 30 second speech. And mm -hmm. by the time I was at the semifinals of the world championship, I had done it more than a hundred times in front of live audiences as part of my practice and learning. So that's the only way you can make it better. You would record it each time and watch it. So I had this crazy routine that I would find live audience, any live audience that is willing to listen to my seven minutes, 30 second speech, I would sign up for it. That means I had to drive all over the San Francisco Bay area up and down. And I would do it lunchtime. I would do it evenings. I would do it weekends. And in some cases, I would catch a flight just to get one seven minutes, 30 second speaking opportunity. Wow, that's dedication. Audience, like at a regional conference, uh, they invited me to come and speak and be the keynote speaker as part of it. They said, you can do this speech also. And then I would record them all, send it to my coach in Chicago. Uh, it's Prasian Vasilev, the 2013 world champion. And then Friday after work, I would fly down and stay in a hotel so I could practice with him live Saturday, Sunday, and fly back. And I did weekend after weekend. It, uh, I don't know how I got through that period, but it can get very obsessive. At least to actually a second skill that I picked up along the way is to be doggedly persistent. And I learned this after I did my first ever marathon. Mm. And before that, I'm not an athlete by any stretch of the imagination. So in the culture I grew up, it's more to get good scores in the math test than uh, shine on the basketball court. 
that's just how Indian culture is. <laughs> and, and growing up in India, the emphasis was not on sports, but academic excellence, particularly in math and sciences, and get into a professional degree course. So, but when I came here, I mean, actually, I stumbled across the finish line, literally speaking, I was not running it, at, of the Central Park, of the New York Marathon. I just happened to be in Central Park at the time, and I didn't realize it was the day of the New York City Marathon, and I saw all these people go by, and I had a certain imagination of the kind of people who probably run marathons. And what I saw was these were not elite athletes. These were people who were on wheelchairs and crutches and people with all types of body types were finishing the marathon. And that's when I said, if they can do it, I should be able to do it. It took me several years to sign up. Finally, I signed up and I did it. It took a lot of training and having coach and working with the team, etc. But I stumbled across the finish line in a time that is not flattering at all. And again, it proved once again, I'm not an athlete. <laughs> but all I cared was that you know I had to get across the finish line. But it taught me the power of setting a goal and being persistent about it and getting to it. And I started bringing that approach to other things, including the winning the Toastmaster, or not winning, getting to I said in the top 20. That didn't happen automatically. And after I first started competing, it took me almost 17 years before I got to that stage. And I'm still not done because I've not won outright. At the back, there is a gap, and that gap is for the actual championship trophy. And, but I don't care if it takes 20 years or it doesn't happen in my lifetime. Again, the goal is not to outright win a piece of plastic you can put on your bookshelf, but to constantly keep pushing, saying, can you better get better at it this year than the previous year? So that sense of dogged persuasion and knowing this is you're doing this for the long haul and you're competing only against yourself and the game is never over. It's just the innings got over. So there's one more inning that you can give yourself if you're pursuing a goal is another, I would say, using your terminology, superpower that just life experience has taught me. Yeah, thank you. And I think the listeners who are watching this are also getting the, the path of learning, the context of learning also, as well as the path of learning. The context is that this is not as a way to win some medals or plastic things or acknowledgement. This is a path of self-actualization, self-realization, right? There is actually one superpower that you mentioned. <clears throat> I wanted to identify it and set up the question a bit. So one of your TED Talk, the MC, talked about the magic of Gopi. She recounted uh, a time where uh, you showed up at a restaurant for some events, and then within minutes, you were able to get everyone shifting their context, their attitude, including the bartender, the wait staff, right? And, and I would say this, this is unique and different because not everyone, so a lot of people run marathons, a lot of people do public speaking, in my mind, these are external skills, right? But certain, certain people with certain charisma, certain magic can actually empower people to do something that, that's outside of the context of everyday activities. So can you talk a little bit more about that, the magic of Gopi a bit? I know it sounds a little egoic, but, uh, <laughs> but if you can kind of try to hone in on the, the X factor on that a bit, uh, I, I think it's worth discussing. Yeah. So I, I don't know what is it that, you know, particularly refer to the magic of Gopi, but I'm getting a sense of what you might be referring to or that particular host was referring to me when she was introducing me. But underlying all this, CK, is that simple notion that everyone is human and everyone is worthy and everyone is amazing and in the culture I grew up, we're also trained that everyone is divine. It's actually a collection of divine beings in different human experiences. And it's the exact same divine being. And it's different instances of it. There are 100 billion humans that have walked this planet or are currently still here, about 7.4 billion, but an estimated 100 billion from the first time Homo sapiens stood upright and started walking. And all those 100 billion are considered like various instances of just amazing human beings, divine beings in a human form. So you start with that sense of connection. And essentially, if I were to use in a podcast like this, I would use a sense of love. And what 
years of practice of yoga, particularly yoga philosophy has taught me is as much as possible, lose that sense of the other and find, lose that sense of separation and find a point of connection. And that's a very meaning of the word yoga. It means to join, to join yourself mm. with everyone else and find mm. connection and eventually to a larger cosmic consciousness. Mm, 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 mm. So when you approach every gathering, every situation with that, all you feel is a deep sense of connection uh, and a deep sense of love and empathy and compassion. You don't see separation. You don't see the other. And then you're a lot more forgiving. Very little, few things annoy you. Of course, people have their unique ways of approaching it and they have their behavioral things and things may trigger you, etc. That's normal. You're also just being human. But underlying all that, you're able to just acknowledge the fact that, you know, there is this connection interdependency amongst us. And that creates a certain spaciousness, that creates psychological safety, that creates certain beauty. And then things start flowing, magic happens. And you can have fun with it. And you're not uncomfortable in any situation. You're not nervous about it. And if things don't work the way, you wanted it to in that human interaction in the energy, that's okay. You let it go. And because you know everything is fleeting and everything is transient. So it's it is that sort of an approach that allows me to operate with that kind of, I would say, spaciousness. And for the most part, it works. It it chills everyone. And, uh, and to get there, you also shouldn't take yourself way too seriously. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think life is too important to be taken seriously. So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that way, when you act in a disarming way with you know, your own, could be as simple as self-deprecating sense of humor or doing things that are a little wild and crazy, but done for fun, it gives permission to everyone else to do that. So I'll give an example you know, in real terms, practical terms, how it goes from the outrageous to what might be possible. So you go to Burning Man. That's where we met. Mm -hmm. and and I've gone 15 years. This would have been my 16th year if mm -hmm. we had it. Why do I go? One of the reasons is it's this artificial container that exists for a week. Mm -hmm. Everyone is given permission to just be themselves in whatever way they want. Creative freedom, life expression freedom, etc. Right? Everyone who shows up, especially the people who have been going there for a while, do that. And the silliness of it all and what people are wearing and how what form they take on is it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world and therefore it is beautiful because the instant you go there you, the very first time people who don't even know what the festival is what arrive and change they watch this and say oh i can be that way right so that's sort of a norm now it's easy because that container burning man permits it and that's how it got created and that's how it's thrived for 30 years and that's why only a certain type of person gets attracted to it. It's not for everyone. Not everyone is at that level of comfort or uh, thinking. But elements of it you can bring to other situations also. So I have walked into business meetings here at work and in with some of my Burning Man attire. I did one last week. I was presenting to a group of uh, fairly senior clients. I had my crazy hat and jacket on. And uh, part of what I'm asked, you know, I have to do these kind of conversations, really create magic with the products we're building, the ideas we're exploring. Mm. Like I said, you know, we will explore, but let's start with some little magic. And I actually did a magic trick, you know, where out of the hat, I pulled out their product. And it was, it is fun. It is a little uh, silly, but instantly gives permission to everyone saying, relax, let's be ourselves and have a really good conversation. Mm. And, the most difficult business conversations take place when people are relaxed, having fun. That's when you learn. That's when creativity flows. That's when ideas explode. But in order to get people to that stage, I had to take that little bit of a risk of doing something on the edge. Mm. And that, so I was bringing a concept I might have learned from Burning Man into the situation. First, I give myself permission, take that risk. It could bomb. It could go the other way. But it's <laughs> fine. Uh, it's not going to kill me. It actually worked very well. And uh, yeah. we had so much fun and amazingness in that meeting and conversation. Mm. I like that. So if I understand you correctly, you constantly are putting yourself or create situations where you're putting yourself at the edge 
that requires a little bit of a risk that requires a little bit of courage, right? And then as a way to strengthen your own uh, muscle or permission, whatever you call it, as a way to take bigger and bigger risks. Is that accurate? Only partially. Let me restate exactly what I'm saying. So the idea is not to put yourself on the edge or take risks just for the sake of saying, can I take a risk or can I be on the edge? Mm. The idea is to create these kind of environments where I said, make it disarming, make it a little fun, give people permission. Mm -hmm. But to do that, you have to do something that may be slightly on the edge or unconventional. Mm. You're not doing it to get the edge or to take a risk. You're doing it to get to that end state. And therefore, Mm. that risk or being on the edge is just an intermediate step. If there is a way by which you can do it without taking the risk, without doing going to that edge, that's fine too. So for example, there are you know, meetings that I've done where I said, let's just, you know, before we get into the business topic, let's just sit down and meditate for a few minutes. And to, in today, yeah, five years ago, that would have been seen going, taking a risk, going on the edge, but not today. People do it all the time. Let's ground ourselves. It'll be seen as a little new age, woo-woo stuff, but uh, very normal in San Francisco or California <laughs> and almost expected. <laughs> <laughs> a tech company, right? So, mm, I love that. Thank you. What would you say is the source of your courage? And I wanted to say this because you do a lot of work personally, right? Like on the on the personal level, you practice yoga. You you take on physical challenges like marathons. You you know, do these type of things as a way to bring in in that that collective flow, right? <clears throat> What would you say is the source of that courage? What I want to inquire about is there's a lot of things that we could do, but we don't do because of that. Oh, I wonder what people is going to think of me or I don't want to look stupid. Like a lot of those internal resistance. Where, where did you find that internal courage as a way to overcome any kind of internal voice that you may have? Yeah. So the word courage implies that you're going up against some kind of a fear. And it could be fear of, you know, when you take any kind of risk, there is the fear of, in this case, it is what I call social risk, embarrassment, being laughed at, being judged. This is our fear, right? If I do something, I fail. Others will think I'm stupid or I'm not talented or I am clumsy. Whatever is the story in your head. Or it could be fear of losing something. I have these resource assets. If I take all of my life savings and start this restaurant, then what will I do? How will I live? How will I survive? Or you know, I fell in love with someone in in Italy and uh, I want to move to be with her. Or she's suggesting we buy a boat and go sailing around the world for a year and have an amazing time. And what if I uprooted myself and made the decision and things didn't work out? It would be kind of messy and I have to unwind life and uh, I would leave behind so much baggage. So are all these fears that come. What gives me the courage is, so what started giving me the courage was two realizations. The first is that in the long term, none of these will matter. Mm. Okay, We live in such a temporary, impermanent life in some very short time window, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, CK, you and I and everyone listening to the podcast will be a pile of dust somewhere and nothing, none of our life will matter. No one will remember. We'll be just like a little tiny speck of dust. There won't be any memories. People, the world would have moved on. How much do we remember? A few characters here and there, maybe there's a paragraph left about them in the book. uh, And... and, uh, I was struck by this when I was in Mongolia and I went to Karkoran, which is the capital of Genghis Khan, uh, one of the greatest invaders, conquerors the world has seen. In fact, and he's a Mongolian and uh, emperor and he did it all on horseback without telephone, social media, without Twitter. and <laughs> Without Google. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I used, I mentioned that platform because of the fondness of leaders around the world to broadcast their message large numbers of people so riding on a horseback he had created an empire that i'm told stretches from modern day korea in the east all the way to turkey in the west and when i went to, oh the capital is nothing left in karkoran 
they pointed the guide pointed me to a little turtle a giant turtle in the in the in the desert and said and there was a tumble of rubble rocks strewn around the turtle they said off the capital this was supposed to be the corner of the big fort that that was his house and all of that is gone time and history has wiped it all away all that is left is this giant turtle that defined the corner of the wall that surrounded his fort and that is Genghis Khan right mighty emperor who at one point ruled over so much of the of the world and it's the same goes for Alexander the Great or any one of these people that must have had such a fierce, powerful hold over such a large space, human beings and geographical territory. None of this matters. Uh, few people, their memories are left. One statue, maybe a little bit of a book, a few chapter. But another hundred years, even the ones in modern history that we've talked about who created waves will become less and less known, right? So, so that gave me, so there's nothing to worry about. In the long term, all these things we worry about will just not be significant. We'll be a pile of dust somewhere. The second is the realization that at some level, no one really cares or watch. Everyone is watching about themselves. They're concerned about themselves. Okay? People don't have the mind space to look at you. For a brief fleeting seconds, they might say, oh, you're silly or you're, if they're judging you at all. Okay? But most of the time, we are all so concerned with ourselves. We don't have the time to look at someone. So that should give you a lot of relief. No one is really paying attention to you. You have to work very hard to get people's attention in the first place. So get over it. Okay, You can do anything you want. You can give the worst speech and bomb. For eight seconds, they might say, oh, that worst speech didn't work. But people have moved on. They're not, you're the only one still obsessing over it. Mm. So realization, I said, I have nothing to fear. And the third is... What are you fearing? You're only fearing a construct in your head and imagine in someone else's head. It is only a thought process. It's not going to kill you. None of these things will. Unless you're doing something that has got a physical risk attached to it. Mm -mm -mm. If you're trying skydiving or base jumping or something like that. But then you take a calculated risk. Mm -hmm. And even there, you lose the fear once you realize the worst thing that can happen is, yeah, I could get terribly injured, but I'm prepared to live with that situation. Or I could die, but you know, what by die, what we mean is that this body is shed off, which is again a temporary phenomena, if you have that sort of a belief system. So mm -hmm. when you yeah, deconstruct this, you realize there's nothing to fear and might as well live a full life without fear. Mm. Uh, I love that. Thank you. So what I'm hearing you say is Effectively, you you have a mantra, a mantra of like memento mori, like hey, all this is impermanent. At, at some point, even as the you know Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, even people like that, they're left with just you know a uh, uh, rubble somewhere in the house. Yeah, yeah. Also, we 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 pay so much attention to the significance of our life and our stories, but it's just that tiny speck in the overall scheme of things. I mean, right now in this moment, you know, we're sitting here feeling very super important and on this podcast and we are like <laughs> on social media, how many people actually plus one it and did I get 5,000 likes? We These are the metrics by which we measure our worthiness. But if you look at it at one level, it it does not matter, CK. We, we, Right now, we are in this giant universe. Our Earth is spinning at this incredible speed on its axis and moving around, right? And on this planet, all of us are there, 7 billion of us or close to 8 billion on this planet doing our little thing right now in this moment, sleeping, walking, doing a job, repairing something, making food. And, and this Earth is just this very tiny planet Mm -hmm. one Milky Way. That's not even the largest Milky Way. And just in this planet alone, there are thousands, tens of thousands of stars, mm -hmm. even bigger than our solar system, our sun. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this Milky Way is just one of millions of galaxies that are out there in the universe. I mean, they extend so vast that we can't even peer the outreach. We don't have the luminous travel there. We don't have the devices and telescopes. The best we have is the James Webb telescope, right? You know, which only allows us to see a certain distance and not beyond that. That is the vastness, the gigantic nature of this this thing that we occupy, universe we occupy. Mm. 
And in the midst of this, this is one tiny lonely planet, the only one we think there is life on, but they're probably, you know, who knows what's going on in the other places. And even here, like I said, there are close to 200 countries, seven, eight billion of us walking around. And in the midst of all this, it's this life of mine. And yet the constant in my head is, in the midst of all this, there is me. What do you not see? Right? <laughs> so at some level, I find that it's silly. It's, yeah, it's not to trivialize anyone's life, but just put that in context. And when you realize that, then you realize, yeah, our, my life is just one tiny speck in this larger story. And the world is just less than a microsecond of attention on my life. So then there's nothing to fear. I just do it for my own enjoyment and pleasure for the most part. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I think having that kind of mindset allows you and also people who are listening to this will actually just calm their internal <laughs> noise, you know, bring that equanimity, you know, calm that anxiety towards the future, regress of the past, anything like that, and just live the life as best as they can in this moment. So I appreciate that. I want to shift our attention a little bit differently. So part of on this podcast we talk a lot about is actually sharing our voice, sharing our truth, right? And and you have a very interesting title, Chief Evangelist. What would you say, well, one, how would you define evangelist as a word? And two, how are you diving or digging into who you are and expressing your truth? Yeah, so... The, yeah, the title evangelist is commonly used in the tech industry, but for most people, it trips them apart because it's used in the in the context of religious Christian evangelism. And the term, you know, literally, it's but it's you. I look at it the way the word guru is used. Originally, guru used to be it's a word for literally it means teacher in Sanskrit, but almost always it seemed to be associated with teachers of spiritual wisdom and therefore there was a mental construct that it was a man and older bearded and dressed in orange <laughs> right. living in a place called an ashram a monastery that was the word with guru but in in, in the indian culture guru is also used for music teachers and uh, dance teachers but still associated with the sacred arts and now it is spread people say oh he's a artificial intelligence guru or she is a biochemical guru. So it extends to other areas as well. It's the same way, the idea of an evangelist, it's someone who believes so passionately in a point of view, and they're able to speak about it in a persuasive manner, uh, in a compelling manner, and in that process, get you to believe their point of view. So the reason the tech industry uses it, usually a lot of innovation that comes out of the tech industry is disruptive. An old model has to be completely shed away and a new model has to be adopted. And you have to be one of the first early believers in it. And then you have to argue for that point of view before people you can get people to believe in it. And that's where the term comes from. So classic examples of that is 10 years ago, I've told you that The number of auto accidents that is caused in the that happens in each year in the world is about 1.8 million. 97% of them caused by human error. People fall asleep on the wheel, they drink and drive, they get distracted, they are on the phone. So therefore, if we take the human out of the picture, we should have safer streets. Let's have cars without humans driving around. That would have seemed preposterous, right? Nobody would have believed you. That's even possible. Stop wasting my time. And yet somebody had to believe and evangelize that idea and persuade and get people to rally around it and invest the technology, the platforms, et cetera, before we could have had the first self-driving car on the road. And now it's not only reality, it's being tested, right? Fully autonomous vehicle are on the road going through their testing phase. And that's what I mean by you've got to be evangelical about it. Uh, and that's where the term comes from. In my case, what I'm evangelizing is I meet with the senior leaders, people at the C-level of the big customers, clients that we have, and have to make them believe in that their entire business model 
in the way they deal with their customers and every aspect of the product, no matter what industry they're in, is being disrupted and has to be transformed by a layer of digital and how they should go about it. And uh, Right. So, But that's what you do professionally. What I'm asking is Gopi, the, the human. What is the core idea of what you want to bring forth? And and how how do you get to that truth? And I, well, I, I asked the third question uh, specifically. Sure. In my mind, there's a core truth that we live in. And it in my mind, it requires work to get there. And we, we do it already every day. But to bring that clarity yeah. to reality, sure. for me, that's, it takes work. It takes challenge. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's challenging, right? So, CK, the... But now, if you live into this world for the most part, and if you have some sort of access, some sort of resources, generally the acceptance is an important tool that we all get to use, that we all benefit from, that is extremely useful and necessary in our life is the internet. This entire collection of information, technology, services, etc., that are available to us, whether it's entertainment or education or information. But in the midst of all of that, the point of view that I'm evangelizing is that the most important resource we get to use, the single most important resource we get to use is the inner net. I mean, our physical body, our brain, our mind, our consciousness, our heart, and the inner net of this collection of technology or systems, and you're a PhD in biochemistry, so you know this well. This is extremely sophisticated and complex. What's going on here for each individual and collectively, the way we grow and the way our mental processes develop and the way why one person becomes a smart, benevolent genius, another person becomes a smart, dangerous genius, another person becomes completely deranged. We still don't quite understand all of this, right? But all of this, we see it happening. Why? So uh, how people can transmute anger to solving a problem or to violence, et cetera, et cetera. I can keep going. But this is a very complex system that we barely understand, which is why we're struggling with so many problems in our life today, including violence and disparity. And, uh, and, and we are one species that seem to have a larger share of it. Yeah. So this is, this is a super important technology. And the two aspects to it is all of a life experience has to be filtered by this layer, this internet. There is no life experience we have outside of it. If you eat lunch today, the system has to digest it and convert into energy. If you're listening to these words coming out of my mouth, you're looking at my words, you're looking at my expression, my gestures, and then processing it in a certain way. And if there were six people in front doing it, then the six people will walk away with slightly different impressions. Some people might become passionate believers. Some people might walk away totally skeptical, even though you all have access to the exact same words and expressions and gestures, visually, auditorily. Why is that? Because your internet processes differently. So, Or if it's a piece of music you listen to, or a movie you watch, book you read, doesn't matter. There is no life experience we have outside of the system and can be very different in the exact same situation. The second is we go through life and most everyone wants to use this life to express themselves. And we call it self-expression. And the self-expression can be, I wanna create the next great musical hit, to I wanna write a business plan, to I just wanna cook an amazing lunch for my lover, to I wanna redecorate my house, whatever it is, we are constantly expressing ourselves. And all of our expression, whether it's physical, mental, intellectual, from the food you cook to the idea you develop to a song that comes from your throat, has to come from this inner light, inner technology. Right? There is no self-expression outside of it for each person. So therefore, just logically arguing, again, you're a PhD and you're very familiar with the rational, analytical process of deductive <laughs> decision-making, so putting these two things together, we can reach the conclusion very quickly that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of how this inner technology is maintained. If you, may put, if you know how to keep 
and operating and running this inner technology in a peak state. You experience life at a peak state because all life experience has to come from this layer. And you express yourself at a peak state because all self-expression also comes from this layer. Okay? This is making sense? Totally. Absolutely. It's refutable. It's just very logically argued point. And uh, spoke so, yeah, of people. Uh, so hold on, hold on one second. Let me finish the train of thought and then give you a chance. So how do you put this inner technology into a state of peak performance? And this is where the operating manual is already available. You and I don't have to figure it out. All of the people who've gone behind in the past that we have long forgotten, whose names we don't remember, have left tiny footprints and used some manuals for us. And that's what evangelize about. Take charge, take unconditional responsibility for this. And only you can do it. Someone else can guide you a little bit. But most of the work has to be done by you. And this is our principal responsibility. And you're not doing it for the good of the world. It's The world will move on. It'll keep rotating. In fact, it'll even forget you and leave you behind. Remember, you and I are tiny specks. That we, you, I don't know about you. I'm not even going to get the little turtle uh, <laughs> <laughs> reminder monument last icon standing that at least poor Genghis Khan got. So I, no, not even a turtle, stone turtle for me. So the only reason you do it is for your own sake, your own growth, your own development, it's your own personal journey. Thank you. No, that was beautifully said. This is perfect. And actually segues perfectly to my, to the question I wanted to ask you, right? Because yeah. our quality of life is interpreted regardless who you are through this meta layer, through this perception, this consciousness that we have, right? As a way to perceive the object reality. Our subject reality is a filter through this, this layer, right? So, and you illustrated so beautifully how you're able to not only have an understanding personally, a self-awareness of that, and you're also able to articulate to someone else what your thoughts are in a very logical way. And in my mind, it takes a lot of work to get there. How did you arrive that truth personally, as well as how are you able to, what process you took to translate that internal awareness to the external? And, and I say that because a lot of people have an understanding of what they want to say, but they couldn't define it for themselves and also to, to express it to someone else. Yeah. So. And it goes through stages, CK. The first is just realization of the truth. Even you have to know. There's a moment of awareness when you come to conclusions around this. And, and, and the realization I notice is, is in two stages. First, you realize it here. You have an intellectual awareness of the truth. You can frame it. You can articulate it. You can put words around it. And then there is the emotional awareness of the truth. When you feel it, when in a deep down in the heart you know it, and that's when it goes from a simple intellectual understanding to conviction. And when you have conviction on anything, you're unstoppable in your belief system. So that is being aware of the truth. The second is, is to have experiential data behind it. You need to have gone through that experience. You need to have lived the truth. You need to have gone up against the untruth behind that particular situation to realize, oh, this is not serving me well. And it's an iterative process. And experientially, you have to. And that's where it really goes from the intellectual understanding to that experiential. And this is why we have the kind of training that's given to doctors, for example. And that's why it's so rigorous. You don't have weekend online programs by which you can become a doctor. And they're taught certain facts of the human body and disease management. And these are known or currently known piece of information are shared. We don't just tell it to them and say, you graduated, go go do open heart surgery on CK or Gopi. Why they go through the very intense residency program because experientially, and they have to go through hundreds of situations. It's like, go work in the ER room, whatever comes up, deal with it. And when you have gone through 172 ER trauma cases coming in, experientially you understand certain things about the human body and trauma and how to deal with it, right? That's why they have that kind of a training system. So using the same analogy, each one of us has to go through life residency. You know, you can pick up the great texts and learn and attend lectures and sit in workshops and wander from one Burning Man tent to another, listening to panels. 
but you have to go through the life experience. And then when you've gone through that and you have deep rooted conviction and a passionate belief, there comes a point when you have the urge to tell it to others, when you feel compelled to it. There's an old Ethiopian saying, when your heart is full, it overflows through the mouth. When your heart is full, it overflows through the mouth. Meaning when you are filled with your heart with these life experiences, there comes a time when I say, I want to package this. This is a message. I got to give it to other people. And that's when you may want to speak about it. You may never reach that stage. You might still be testing it. There's no expectation. The world does not need it. This is more your own innate need urge to uh, transmit. Mm, I love that. Thank Which you. is why, I mean, it seems like oh, who would ever want to do it, right? This is the first thing that comes. Who would ever want to do it? It seems why take the trouble and it's a lot of effort. But just stop and look at books. This is what a book represents. Every book is that expression of uh, something people want to say. And how many are there? An estimated 36 million books. And you'll stop and wonder, right? And, and no one goes to physical libraries and bookstores of few and far between. But I bring up that analogy because it existed at one point that, or look at the Amazon catalog, look at the number of books listed. Each one is an attempt by someone to present a persuasive message or idea about relationships, about thermodynamics, about their view of history, about Ayurvedic cuisine, whatever it is. They're like, I need to get this out. This is my expertise. I have so much knowledge, a body of work. Some human somewhere spent time understanding, learning, mastering all of this, and then they will want to transmit it. And having written two books, I know this is not for the faint of heart. And uh, not, no. which is why I only have two books and not 20. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to reach my limit. It's a hard process. The first one took me 10 years to write. Mm. Sort of built a process. And the second one, three, four years. And yet people do it. The same way, look at the platform, like creative platform, like, let's say, YouTube, and I use it as an example because you know, I'm familiar with it. I'm close to it. It's owned by Alphabet, Google. Yeah. Every hour, 400, every minute, 400 hours of video gets uploaded to the platform. Every minute. What this means in human scale is I am starting to speak the sentence. And as I continue to speak the sentence, and if I were to take a minute to finish the sentence, CK, in this instant right now, Human beings are uploading videos. And when I stop, finish, when I finish the sentence, like right now, all of these videos that just happen in this instant will take us 400 hours to watch. And the next minute it happens again, another 400 hours, and the next minute. This is constantly happening. And if you examine those videos, these are people, again, transmitting messages. It's creative. They're dancing. They're singing. They're doing cooking shows. They're teaching someone how to speak Spanish or to make car do carpentry work. Or they're explaining the great theories of or, or the explanation behind the first three Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Whatever it is they choose to, they're like, I have a body of knowledge. I want to propagate. I want to communicate. And it's all for free, right? Whether you, a few people make maybe save money off it. Most people don't, but they're uploading beauty tips and tutorials and some of it just to gift it away, some of it for hopefully fame and celebrity status. Some people want many, many likes. Uh, and none of this will matter anyway. As I said, we'll all be a pile of dust somewhere soon. So, But still, we chase it, we pursue it. And that innate need. So I'm not the only person who is chief evangelist of something. As I showed, those are examples of everyone is evangelizing something out there. So, so let's talk about that for a moment, because you are very familiar with technology. Yeah. I'm running a little bit out of time, running up against my next meeting, so I need to. Uh, I've got several appointments after this. Oh, totally. To. So why don't we actually let's let's uh, leave following questions as a cliffhanger. So Gopi, I want to acknowledge you for sharing your wisdom, sharing your life journey, sharing your life philosophy with us. Um, there's so many more questions I want to ask. <laughs> I want to geek out with you. Every time we have interactions, it's always, you know, very, very deep, very felt emotionally. So I appreciate the openness, the, the, the courage, the generosity that you share with me as well as my, my audience here. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I hope that we get a chance to, to jam again on just the, the secrets of life. How do we actually, you know, build a, a business, a, a life of 
purpose and fulfillment. So thank you so much for being on the show. Really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Reverend Sikke. Pleasure being on it and uh, such a delight exploring these topics. And yeah, again, my final word of wisdom to anyone listening is, yeah, explore, be curious, go to the boundaries of your life. And we have one life, live a full life. And uh, let us all each be the directors of our own life and still not lose perspective saying, in 100 years, none of this will matter. We'll be lucky if we get one turtle, a stone turtle somewhere as a reminder of the fact that we even existed. That doesn't matter. Beautifully said. Thank you, Gopi. Thank you.